right? So if you have a Bible, go ahead and go turn to Isaiah chapter 8, verse, actually verse 9. And then uh, we're going to work our way down through chapter 9, verse 7 today. So I know it kind of seems random, but it's, uh, it's not, I don't think. So we're, um, but we're going to get through about um, a chapter, kind of half of 8 and half of 9. And uh, that's, where, that's where we'll be. So if you have a Bible or your phone or whatever, you can get there and follow along. Um, so here, here's where we're at uh, in Isaiah. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot of hard words um, through Isaiah's uh, message to the people of Judah and Israel. Um, the kingdom of Israel was divided after the uh, period of Solomon's reign. And so there's uh, two kind of separate countries that make up Israel. And so Judah is one and Israel or Jerusalem is how it's referred to sometimes is the other. And um, we are, we're hearing a lot of hard things, but um, what we're seeing in the midst of the hard things is God's offer of grace. Uh, and, and that's really good news for all of us because we, we all need to hear hard things, but we also need to be reassured with the kindness of Jesus. And so that's really where we're going to go today. Um, what, fundamentally, what we're going to see this morning is the, this contrast between living outside of Jesus Christ and the gospel and what that looks like and how that manifests itself and uh, contrasted with Jesus and what he's done for us and how he shines light into the world. Um, so what we're going to see in the first half of this text is really just the darkness of the world without Jesus and, and what is happening in their lives as a result of that darkness. I kind of think about this um, as like living in a world without points of reference uh, and how hard that is. Right? When, you're, when you're just kind of in darkness, if you've ever had to like stumble through a dark room that you're not familiar with, um, you don't have points of reference. Right? And, and so you may run into things, you may step on things because you can't see and you don't know where things are at. It was like when um, most of you have probably been here if you were a driver. Um, when I was in college, uh, I, I drove through a snowstorm that I'll probably never forget. Uh, um, just so so bad. Um, and I've been through some bad snowstorms since being up here too, but nothing quite as scary as the one that I'd driven in when I was a senior in college. I was uh, trying to get from the northern suburbs of Chicago to my college in downtown Chicago. I don't think I made it all the way there that, that night, um, but it was just a snowstorm that literally it covers everything, right? The whole road is covered. You have no idea where your points of reference are. You don't know if you're in your lane or in the other lane or off the road. Um, and you're just kind of de depending on like signs and going, okay, I'm not crashing into the mailboxes, so I must be somewhere close. Um, that's, you've, you've probably been there. And, and then on top of that, when you're driving at night, like I was at this point, you've got your headlights which are just making everything worse. <laughs> you know how that goes? It's like, it's just shining the, the reflection of the snow back at you. And so it's so much harder to see even with your lights on. Um, and so I, I, I encountered that. You've probably encountered that. And that's really what life is like 
without the light of Christ, making, making clear the path for us and showing us the way. We just are sort of gripping the wheel with white knuckles, hoping we're, we're not going to run off the road um, or into uh, oncoming traffic or something like that. So um, we, we're going to see that kind of lack of reference in the darkness contrasted with the light of Christ. So that's where we're going to go. Let's, let's start in verse 9. Um, verse 9 through 11, or excuse me, 9 through um, 13 is really going to lay out for us what is required of us if we are going to walk in light, in the light. What, what's required of us to get there? And then we're going to see from verse um, 14 through about 21 or so, or 22, that um, we're going to see what gets in the way of the things that we need to be and do. We're going to see what gets in the way. And then we're going to see what's required for, for all of this to be healed. And, in, um, and that's going to be in nine through uh, chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. So that's kind of the direction we're going. But let's look at first what's required. <clears throat> um, start in verse 9. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all of you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Now, um, here's what this is giving us. It's giving us the very first thing that is required if we're going to walk in the light. And, and that is um, really summarized in one word. It's summarized in humility. It, it's being broken of our own belief in our ability to save ourselves. It, it's recognizing that we have nothing to offer the Lord. We only have our brokenness and, and he can take that and heal it. It starts with be broken and be shattered Give ear, pay attention. And then he says, strap on your armor and be shattered. And he repeats that sentence twice. Strap on your armor and be shattered. What is he saying? Well, armor is, uh, of course, military um, uh, garb and, and what you would put on to get into a battle. And the, you don't put on your armor expecting to be shattered, right? That's the point of the armor. Uh, the armor is to keep you from being shattered. But God is saying, you put on all the things that you think are going to protect you and recognize that they're going to fail you. You're going to be shattered. We need humility. We need to recognize that our, our strength is not enough. And then it says, verse 10, take counsel together, but it, com- but it comes to nothing. In other words, we need the humility to realize that our strength is not enough to save us and our intelligence is not enough. Even our collective intelligence is not enough. Take counsel together. Try to work this out in, your, in yourselves, among yourselves, but it's going to come to nothing. It's going to come to nothing. You, so we, we've got we've to have this humility about us where we're willing to be broken. We're willing to be shattered for the good of recognizing that Jesus will come and meet our needs as we have need. So we need, first, humility. We need something else, though, here, too, and it's in verse 11 through 13. 
says this, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Um, <clears throat> this, is, this is telling us that we need something fundamental. We need to recognize our need, our humility, but we also need to put our trust in the Lord. We need trust. Humility and trust are really two sides of the same coin. Um, it's coming to the end of yourself and then realizing that you have nowhere to turn but to the Lord. That's what we're seeing. The Lord is encouraging his people to, to stop being fearful of all the things that people are fearful of and instead to lean into him and trust in him. He says, don't call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Now in the context of chapter eight, uh, seven and eight, which we looked at last week, um, there, there was a conspiracy uh, against King Ahaz. Right? If you recall from our sermon last week, Ahaz was the king in Judah. He was of the line of David. And the people of um, the surrounding nations, but Israel in particular, was conspiring against Ahaz to try to take him down and set up their own king. And this uh, really threw Ahaz for a a loop and it scared him. Um, And God comes to him through Isaiah and says, listen, you don't need to be afraid of this because what they're planning isn't going to come to pass. And so what we're seeing in this this text is, I think, a callback to that. And, And he's saying to, still speaking, I think, to Ahaz, but to the people collectively and saying, listen, don't be afraid of this conspiracy against you uh, because the Lord is going to protect you. The Lord of hosts, it's him that you should honor. It's him that you should fear. It's, it's him that you should put your hope and trust in. Right? And he, that's what we are, um, that's what we're meant to do. That's fundamentally, it's not complicated. The Christian life is about recognizing our need so that's humility. It's right coming to a point where we can't save ourselves. We can't do enough good works. We can't think smartly enough about things. We need Jesus to save us. We come to that point, and then we have to take that point and trust in him. That's, that's what every person who is a Christian has done. And, and that's looked differently for different people, and it's happened differently for different circumstances. But fundamentally, that's what it means to be <clears throat> become a Christian. It is to come to the end of yourself and turn to Jesus for your help. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, what we're seeing there is that. That's just, that's just fundamentally what's required of us. <clears throat> I'm going to try not to cough my way through this. Um, <clears throat> not doing well. All right. Um, can you give me some, there's a thing of water in there, I think. Now we got to see what gets in the way uh, of this. What's required and what gets in the way. <coughs> no one should shake my hands after church, by the way. Um, so uh, it, if what we need is humility and what we need is trust, thank you, oh, it is. then 
fundamentally what makes sense is pride and um, trusting other sources, right? So that's what you would expect, and that's what we're going to see. In verse 14 and 15, look at this. It says, And he will become a sanctuary. The Lord will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. (coughs) Excuse me. And a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So here we're seeing the, the problem. The problem is pride. And, and what, what God is saying here to us is this, that when we do not walk in humility, we are stumbling on this rock of offense. That God's message to us is offensive to our human pride. It's offensive to us because what God says to you and to me is this, you can't do it. You can't save yourself. You need a savior. You need a rescuer. You need someone who can help you. (laughs) But um, that doesn't sit well with us a lot of the time, does it? That's a stumbling block. That's something that we listen to in our flesh and go, what are you talking about? I can do this. I can save myself. I can help myself. I I don't need anyone. I can just do it. I can figure it out. And so what God's saying is is that when that's our mindset, we have this stumbling block of pride that's put in front of us that we're tripping over. The Lord will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling a trap and a snare. <coughs> Whoa, sorry. And, um, and uh, so this is, this is not just a problem that Isaiah was dealing with. This is a problem that we've all dealt with, that every single person has, has encountered. In fact, if you go to the book of Romans, you don't have to turn there because I'm just going to read one, uh, one quick verse. But Romans chapter 9, Paul uh, actually quotes this um, this passage for us in talking about the pride of unbelief. Um, Look at verse 30 through 33. Uh, Listen as I read it. It says, Paul writes, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who, so people outside of the, the houses of Israel, who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Paul's looking at this in the context here and he's saying, look, um, we got Gentiles coming to Jesus left and right. What's up with that? Because they got this righteousness by faith that they didn't earn, they didn't deserve, but they're pursuing it. And then verse 31, he says, but that Israel, who who historically had God's law, who historically should have understood the whole thing, pursued a law that would lead to righteousness but did not succeed in reaching that law. 
So Israel had the law, which in theory should have led them to the righteousness that, that God wanted for them, but they didn't reach that righteousness. Why not? Verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. The, the people of Israel believed that their righteousness could be attained by their good works by just their own strength, by mustering the power in themselves. And so Paul says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Verse 33, as it is written, and he's going to quote this verse that we just read, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But then he quotes another part of Isaiah, and he lumps them just together as if they're one passage, you'll notice that what we we're going to read wasn't in the passage we're in, but it is in Isaiah later on. And here's how he summarizes it. But whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So there is this contrast between trying to earn our way to Jesus through our good works, which becomes a stone that we stumble on unless we humble ourselves and trust in Jesus. And what Paul's just pointing out in Romans 9 is that there's this whole large movement of non-Jewish people who are coming to faith in Jesus and are trusting in him for their salvation. But by and large, not all, but many of the people of Israel rejected Jesus. Not all of them have, but, but many of them had. And it raised the question, why? Why were the people who had God's word for all of these centuries, why were they the ones that rejected Jesus when it was so clear that he was the promised Messiah? Why would they reject him? And, and Paul's answer is because they were depending on their own good works. And so this stumbling block comes in because they thought they could save themselves by being a good person or by doing X, Y, and Z. And so he applies Isaiah chapter 8 to that. Um, we're also going to look at, um, in, towards the end here, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, um, to, and he's going to quote this passage as well, but we'll get there in, in a minute. So the first thing we're seeing is this stumbling block of pride. That's the first thing that gets in the way of having the life that Jesus died to give us. There's a second thing, though, and that is putting our trust in other sources, Uh, sources of saviors that cannot save. So look at verse 16, uh, really through the end of of chapter 8, this this long paragraph here. It says this, Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given to me are signs and portents in Israel, from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress 
and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So here's the thing. Here's what the people of Israel were doing at this point in, in time. And Isaiah is addressing the, the period of time that they're, they're in. They were putting their hope and trust in, in supernatural things that were not the Lord. They, they didn't like become a secularist society, which is more of the tendency of the West today to, to avoid anything spiritual and to, and which is really an outflowing of the uh, Enlightenment period uh, where the, we started to question anything that wasn't natural or observable. And so we started to say things like, well, if, if we can't prove it, then it, then it must not be true. And that's, that's our problem. But that wasn't Israel's problem. Israel didn't have a problem believing in the spiritual. They, they didn't have a problem with this, but they were trying to pursue wisdom through really demonic means rather than through God. They were pursuing inquiring of mediums and necromancers, people who, who believed that they could talk to the dead or raise the dead, and they were being enthralled by that, right? And go, wow, look at this. These, these guys can, can draw up grandpa or something, and, and here we are, and I can talk to him, and all these things. And, um, and God is just shocked and appalled by this. And he's like, should you not inquire of God? Like, God, like these guys, have, they're, they're just a... It's, it's a sideshow. It's a, it's a carnival act. It can't, and yet you have access to God who created all things and you're not going to ask him for help. You're not going to ask him for wisdom. You're going to just pursue these other things. And, and so they were putting their trust in sources beyond the Lord. Now, we, there may be some people in our day that, that do this and pursue things that are similar to that, you know, that's, that's, but I don't think that that's the norm. Um, I think for us, the ways that we trust in other sources beyond the Lord, it really does depend for us on, um, we're, we're going to trust science in a lot of ways. We're just going to go blatantly, okay, that's what they say, so that's right, even if it contradicts God's word. And we, we got to be careful with that. I'm not, a not, I'm not an anti-science guy, okay? I love science. I I think that there's a lot we can learn about God's world. But we got to understand the greatest scientists historically were also Christians. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton was a Christian. We have a long history of people who had discovered things about God's world and they understood that it was pointing to God's creation. And it's been in the last hundred years or so that things have turned. We're trusting other sources beyond what God has clearly revealed. And we're, we're, we're leaning into things that just are not uh, they don't line up. And when we actually think about them, like critically, and not just accept them as true, we can start to see how those arguments begin to fall apart. You can. You just have to think critically, which is what science is all about, by the way, thinking critically, or at least it's supposed to. Um, I also think that we trust in ourselves, right? And that's, that's, in a, that's a very Western mindset, that, that we can just do things for ourselves. We don't need to trust anyone. We can take care of ourselves. I think there's a, a real tendency in us to do that too. And so whatever it is, the problem that we have as we are walking in darkness is that we're letting our pride get in the way and we're trusting in sources that are not God. And that, that's where we've got to take a turn here. 
So as we get into verse 22, as we look at that last verse, there's a, there's a very um, scary kind of description of the world when this is how we're living. It says that they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's not a positive circumstance, but that's where they're heading. So if we stopped right there um, and there was nothing else in Isaiah, this would just be like, well, you're doomed. Have a nice day. You know, but that's not where it goes. We got to look at the next line, the next chapter, which we, we break it down into chapters or somebody did at some point, but these weren't broken down into chapters and verses when they were written. They were just, it was a continuation. And so we get sort of held up on, well, that, that's a chapter break. We've got to stop there. Now let's just keep reading for a few minutes here and see where this goes. Look at this next word here in chapter 9, verse 1. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he was brought into contempt in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when, divided, when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel to the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. On the, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what, what God delivers to Israel is a, is a warning. The direction you're walking is going to lead you into gloom and darkness and brokenness and all of these things. You're going to be, you are just going to be in anguish and gloom and dark. It's all horrible. But Here's the good news. There will be no gloom for you who are in anguish. Why? Because the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land, the light has shone on them. This is, I mean, you don't have to be like an expert biblical interpreter to know that this is Jesus we're talking about here. Like this is, it's just so clear. It's so obvious. And, and so we, we've just, we're just looking at this contrast between what, what we get when we walk in our own way 
but what God is eager to give us as we embrace and trust him. And, and Jesus came into the world to bring us the light and the joy of the gospel. We see that this is actually about Jesus. Um, it's not just speculatively about Jesus. It is about him because Matthew in his gospel tells us that it is. In Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus begins his ministry, he has just been uh, tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, and now he's in, out launching his public ministry. And look at how Matthew describes this event in verse 12 through 16, through 17, really, we'll read to. It says, Now when he heard, Jesus had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. See, there's all these things that Jesus fulfills, right? The, there's a promise, and then there's a fulfillment, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises. And so here, he's going to quote the, the verses in chapter 9. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came into the world as the fulfillment of these words that had been promised to Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. He's the fulfillment of the promise that we just read, that the people who are living in darkness will see a great light. That light will shine on them. That light will reveal to us all that is broken in us so that we will turn to Jesus. We, we have this beautiful promise that Jesus is for us, all of these things that Isaiah says he would be, that he's going to be our wonderful counselor. A counselor is somebody who helps you to think through what you're struggling with, helps you to think in a different way, perhaps, than how you're thinking. I, I'm an advocate of people talking to counselors. I don't think it's a weakness at all to seek out wisdom from someone outside of ourselves. I think that's wise because we are not that smart and we need people to help point us in the right direction. And so if we have gospel-centered counselors, people who will point us to Jesus, then this can only be good. But ultimately, Jesus is the great counselor that we need. He's the wonderful counselor. He's our mighty God. He's our everlasting Father. He's our Prince of Peace. The things that we experience from Jesus are nothing short of amazing as the light of the gospel shines in our lives. We are the beneficiaries of all that Jesus has done for us in, in his ministry as a perfect man who lived and died and ultimately rose again. And it's through his life, death, and resurrection that we get to be brought in to this marvelous light that he offers us. Look at how Peter explains it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, um, this will be where we conclude here. 
First Peter 2, um, here, here's what he says um, in verse 4. We'll start in verse 4. Um, <clears throat> Peter writes, as, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. As you come to him, he's talking about Jesus. So as we come to Jesus, who is a living stone, who is rejected by men, but in the sight of God was chosen and precious. Peter writes this, you yourselves, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, but whoever, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. So Peter's just stringing together a whole bunch of different verses from, from Isaiah and he's, he's quoting much of what Paul quoted in chapter 9, right? That we've got this cornerstone that's going to build the whole house, but if we reject him and if we continue to live in our pride and our desire to trust others or ourselves beyond him, then uh, we are going to be stumbling over this beautiful rock that was there to build us up. Peter goes on to say that they, those who do not believe, stumble because they disobey the word and as they were destined to do. But you, he says, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's just telling us about the gospel here. He's just saying, this is what Jesus has done for you. He is this, this rock that is going to build this amazing structure that we, we now would call the church, the church universal. Right? All of these people being built up together in Jesus those who reject it are stumbling over the same rock that you and I, if we believe, are, are trusting in and hoping in and finding our joy in. Some people stumble over that same thing that gives us such hope. And that's one of the great things that, that is hard to wrap our heads around. How can some hear it so clearly and others stumble over it so severely? And that's a thing that God, only God can untangle. Only God can untangle. But at the end of the day, what God has done for us is he has chosen us, he has called us to himself, he has made us his own possession, he's brought us out of darkness and into light. And if there's only one thing that, I, that you take away from this as you leave this building today, it's would you be grateful for what Jesus has done for you? That, that you did nothing to earn it. You did nothing to deserve it. And yet God just piles on mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace to us. It's, it's, there's nothing about this that we somehow did. It's all him. 
It's all on him. And he has, by his own goodness and grace, he's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. And isn't that exactly what Isaiah is trying to compel his audience to, to believe? He's, he's painting a picture for them of the kingdom of darkness that they're living in. This gloom and anguish that they're building for themselves by trusting in themselves and trusting in others beyond the Lord. And, and what he's saying to them is this, but you're going you're gonna to just continue to dive into this darkness unless you embrace the one who is to come who will shine on us a great light, who's going to bring about the beauty of who he is so that we would believe and be saved. But the best thing of all, what salvation in Jesus ultimately is, and I love how Peter explains it, he he says that we are a people for God's own possession. We What we get is we get to be God's. That he, he's, we're his and he's ours. That we get to proclaim the wonder of this, this transferring of living for ourselves and just being miserable in the process or being able to be in God's glorious light and belonging to him, having a home, having a place to belong, having a father. No matter how good or bad your human father is or was, God is the perfect father who gives you a home, who wants you to be in his family. And all of this is because of his mercy. You once didn't have mercy and now you do, Peter says. What a glorious thing. What a great God we have. We, we just, you know, I think there's a lot of times where we, we read things like this and go, well, what's the application? Uh, the application is love Jesus because of what he's done for you. Like be grateful for what he's done you and I would be doomed without him. We would be in darkness. We would be in anguish, but we have him. He has us. He's holding on to us, and he's done it all through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. What a great God. Let's, let's praise him because of that, and let me pray for us as we, as we go here. Father, thank you. Thank you for your great kindness, for your your mercy on people who once had no mercy. Thank you for making people who were once not a people into your family, into your children. Would, would you give us the gratitude of our hearts that we need for the gospel today? Would you help us to realize our need for you every moment and to lean into you and trust you? Um, and Lord, we just pray that, that you would do the work in our hearts that we need done this morning. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.